This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Stephen in Edmonton. What? what? <laughs> something's, something's not right here. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we picked up the wrong husband, I think, is what happened here. It must have been some sort of space-time weirdness. Uh, actually, actually, what it, happened is, is Chip is, is feeling very under yeah. the weather. Yeah, this isn't uh, this isn't a Ari Ben Zane style takeover or anything like that to rest <laughs> no. control of Babylon Five. Uh, I, I reason that that Chip is still probably feeling under the weather from watching uh, Grail for last episode. <laughs> that he's probably <laughs> recuperating now. It's I not kind that of sympathize bad. with him. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, the, the feedback on the website is highly interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank, thanks to everybody who came and uh, let us know what you think about Grail. Uh, it seems like Chip is is kind of on his own in this one, although there wasn't a ton of effusive praise. Uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't quite as, as far off the grid. Oh, and before we go any farther, I should probably say, uh, you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, <laughs> Episode 16, Eyes. As we get started, what you need to know. Commander Jeffrey Sinclair has been in charge of Babylon 5 since it opened. He wasn't the Earth government's first choice for the post, but as the other race with major financial backing in constructing and running the station, the Mimbari had veto power. They used it to reject every candidate proposed by EarthGov until Sinclair's name came up. In his time as leader of the station, he's had to make a lot of difficult decisions. A lot of difficult decisions. The station's second-in-command, Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova, has a grudge against PSYCOR, the agency that finds, trains, and employs telepaths. Her mother was a telepath and tried to hide from the Corps. When she was found, she was forced to choose between prison and taking a series of drugs to suppress her abilities. The drugs affected her so badly that she took her own life while Susan was still a teenager. And that brings us to Eyes. So in this episode, officially due to growing unrest by pro-independence factions on Mars and other Earth outposts, two representatives from EarthGov arrive to conduct an internal investigation into the command staff of Babylon 5. How official it is might be open to question, as Colonel Ari Ben-Zane and a telepath from the PSYCOR begin in undercover roles, asking questions about Sinclair. Garibaldi gets wind of their presence and goes to check them out, where the colonel reveals his purpose. Sinclair, Ivanova, and Garibaldi are all upset by the investigation, especially Ivanova. The presence of telepath Harriman Gray is like waving a red flag at a bull, and she's ready to resign rather than allow herself to be scanned by him as part of the questioning. Sinclair pushes back as far as the regulations will allow, until the colonel interferes with the station situation, and Sinclair declares that he is through cooperating. This makes Benzane angry enough to cite specific charges and relieve Sinclair of the command for the duration. While doing what Benzane orders, Garibaldi digs around and finds connections between the colonel and psychop Alfred Bester. That, along with the fact that Benzane was one of the officers passed over for the command of Babylon 5, is enough to send Benzane's impartiality into question, and his outburst of rage shakes Gray's telepathic control, allowing him to see that the entire investigation is a witch hunt rather than a true examination of the command staff's actions. 
In the meantime, Garibaldi has allowed Lanier to lend a hand with a project that has been his hobby for several years, rebuilding a classic motorcycle from Earth. Lanier does too good a job and finishes reconstructing it. Garibaldi is at a loss at first, but his mood improves when Lanier tells him that he replaced the useless gasoline engine with a clean Minbari power source. The joy ride through the corridors is inevitable. And that is our episode, Eyes. To sort of kick things off, I put in my notes, Continuity City. Uh, (laughs) This episode (laughs) refers to um, at least seven previous episodes that I could tell. And I'm curious, I'm very glad Stephen's able to join us because he can give us some instant feedback um, to know how this was for new viewers, whether all of those references were rewarding because you remembered what was going on and were and were getting it or if they were frustrating if they felt like exposition dumps um steven have you got some input yeah i i actually quite like that because um i was i was more i was more pleased and surprised at myself that i recognized the references or at least most of them i think there's as you said there were seven of them i i can't remember the specific ones offhand but i remember sort of saying oh that sounds familiar and that sounds familiar so that's that's kind of cool it sort of tied everything together sometimes when you know they're they're in, in any 22 episode season there's bound to be episodes that are sort of you know very standalone you can take them or leave them and there's other ones that sort of you know make reference to others that that occurred and it just felt like this one was part of the the it was part of the series more than like perhaps Grail last week, which uh, which which could have been taken or left and probably better left. But uh, so I, I actually liked that. I, di- I didn't think it was gratuitous or or uh, an info dump at all. You know, speaking of Grail, since we brought it up again, um, I, I meant to do this at the outset, but I wanted to apologize on behalf of myself and Chip for what. Practically every listener has pointed out to us <laughs> that, yes, David Warner was actually in Doctor Who. He was in uh, Series 7B episode Cold War, and I completely spaced it out, and so did Chip. My justification is the fact that that was a uh, a Mark Gatiss episode, and I tend to forget those. <laughs> I so. like Mark Gatiss. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I think, and also part of it is that we're used to looking for actors who used to be on Doctor Who, like before Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was in the reverse. He was in Babylon 5 first, and then he was in New Who. And I don't think we've had as many actors in that direction. No, definitely not. So, yes, I apologize again and again <laughs> and again. <sighs> okay, so let's let's move on from Grail, though, okay. and talk about this. I actually, I have in my notes that I liked, uh, I liked all of the continuity mentions. That's exactly the kind of thing that I tend to look at as an exposition dump but for some reason it just it it didn't strike me that way even though that's totally what it was you know he was it it was it sounded less like Garibaldi was trying to explain to us what had happened it was more of just kind of like a quick reminder and I, I didn't I didn't mind that you know he's talking about all the different decisions that that Sinclair has made over the I was just like yep that's series one and yeah, I think yeah. I was on Stephen's page where I just, uh, it, it was fun to kind of remember, oh, that, that, that. Yeah, I think Dottillo, this was written by uh, Larry Dottillo, and I think he did a remarkable job doing, as you said, the most of the references are reminders for the characters and sound more natural, like this is something that a person would say to another person when trying to remind them of something. That's why I think it worked a whole lot better and even though we are given 
a huge amount of reminding information. It never feels like it's being just unloaded on you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, I liked it. I, I, I it, it felt it, it sort of brought me in because you know I'm, I'm a new viewer to the series, and, and you know we're basically watching these every two weeks thanks to the podcast release schedule. So at times I like I recognize the reference, but I didn't necessarily get what episode it was from. So sometimes little hints like that during during my own journey through the series is is appreciated. And one continuity thing that uh, that I noticed that I noticed you noticing, Stephen, was as soon as Mister Bester was uh, was mentioned, you gasped and pointed at the screen <laughs> accusingly. <laughs> I did because like, oh, I recognize that name. I recognize it. Yep. And then he even said like he said he'd be seeing us later, which is you know a direct reference to his final line of the episode, Bester's in that uh, his mm-hmm. first appearance, which of course is a, a line straight from the prisoners. So so I enjoyed that little moment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep, that was that was pretty excellent. So, uh, talking about the uh, Bester connection and Psychor, I would love to spend a minute talking about Jeffrey Combs because I just love him so much. Wasn't um, he great? I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. I think it's Combs. Yeah, Combs. Okay. Yeah, I, I was surprised because I, I, I recognized him instantly once his name came up um, because I watched. Deep Space Nine uh, many years ago, and so he was very famous for his his role as Wayun. Uh, mm-hmm. In that, so this is the first time I've ever seen him without uh, the makeup on. Um, oh, cool. So I didn't actually recognize him by face, but I did recognize him by his name. And Erica didn't even know who he was from from that series. So. No, I knew him from uh, the Pit and the Pendulum and uh, was it the Frighteners, the Peter Jackson movie, and 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 I knew he had been in um, some other stuff that I hadn't that I hadn't seen, but that my friends and roommates were really big fans of him for. So there was a. Uh, Quite a quite a Jeffrey Combs fan fan club in my my little group of friends. So uh, knowing that he was on here was very exciting. And then watching him do his thing, he's just he has this wonderful mix of intensity, but yet he's kind of like a little bit of a sad puppy. And he just it, he makes it all work. And I know by the end of the episode, even Ivanova has kind of come around a little bit and sees him more as a person than as you know a psychop telepath. And and I think that it takes a special touch of an actor to to make that work as well as he does. So yeah. bravo to him. Yeah, I, I quite liked his performance overall myself. I loved all the times when he was reacting more humanly than most of the people around him. Uh, Garibaldi cracks a joke at uh, Ben Zion's expense and he chuckles. Um, mm-hmm. Or Sinclair makes the reference to Bester, and he's like, "Wait a minute, something might not be right here." The fact that he was reacting very much like this poor guy stuck in the middle worked for me very well. The only time that I began to frown was um, the the point where he was reciting his childhood dreams to Ivanova. That approached a little mm-hmm. over the top to me a bit, um, but it wasn't so bad that it made me cringe. And I think I'm going to chalk that one up a little more to the writing, because mm-hmm. it did seem, I mean, if he knows her history, and he knows that she doesn't like what she says, she, that she doesn't like Psychor, and why, and it's because of her mother, uh, it'll just feel like maybe he seemed like a smart enough guy that maybe he would have treaded a little more carefully than giving that, you know, huge, this is my life, but maybe not. Yeah, but yeah, I thought he did a marvelous job. i Personally, certainly thought he did a bit better than um, the actor playing uh, Ben Zine, uh, Gregory Paul Martin, who I looked up uh, in the background, and he came from the stage. So that 
immediately um, answer <laughs> some of the um, some of the questions about his some of his choices. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, I just thought that the costume department really missed a trick there because they should have given him the biggest mustache that they had uh, <laughs> in the bin and, you know, just let him twirl and twirl away because I, that was that was the one thing that we were missing from that character. Uh, I, yeah. I kind of find it a shame that because uh, I've only just found this out while looking him up because I wanted because he has that kind of voice. He has a very booming voice and I thought I may, might have heard it before. But I haven't seen or heard him before, but I have heard his father's work before. His dad is George Martin, who, of course, produced all the albums by the Beatles. Huh, really? Um, yeah. So I was almost hoping, now that I look at this, I wish there was some sort of, like, some Beatles reference on his on his outfit or something. But uh, but alas, there was no such thing, so... <laughs> Yeah. You know, despite my comment about the mustache, I, I wasn't actually bothered by his his portrayal too much. I mean, it was definitely over the top, and it it didn't fit as well with the performances I think of the other characters in in this one. But it he he was he's a good enough performer. Yes, it's stagey, but he's good at that mm-hmm. style of mm-hmm. performance. That it didn't bother me. I was mostly just kind of amused by it. So it wasn't like one of the you know the bad guys who's who's terrible and just makes me roll my eyes and groan this mm-hmm. was was one where i was able to just chuckle a little bit speaking of musical references though um with the george martin thing we we get another unintentional musical reference in this one um there's a scene where lanier is uh working on the motorcycle and as Gar- garibaldi comes in uh, lanier is chanting this phrase that's like you know doing some sort of minbari meditation and the zaga bc or whatever it is is actually the album title by a group called Barnes and Barnes, which is uh, Bill Mooney's comedy, fo- uh, comedy fish, music. Fish, fish heads. Yes, yeah, the, the band oh, did fish heads. That's right. Yes, he, wow. he, he, yeah, he, he turned that into that album title into a chant just for fun because <laughs> you know they told him chant something, and he's like, "Do you have any suggestions?" No, just chant something, and he did. And after after Straczynski found out what he'd done, he pulled Bill Mooney aside and said, okay, no more plugging your records on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Yes. Thought that was, that's highly amusing. Uh, some of the things that, that, that get slipped in there. So um, as we were talking about actors, um, how do we figure some of our regulars are doing? Um, I guess um, now is as good a time as any for our Sinclair check. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Stephen and I had rather a, an argument about this after the episode finished. Ooh, because controversy. I, yeah, it was. It was. Pebblin 5 is coming between us. No, it wasn't that bad. But I uh, remember after the last few episodes, I was thinking that maybe he had turned a corner because I really enjoyed Sinclair in the last few. But then we get to here and it's just it's it's maybe not backsliding as m- much as uh, at the very beginning, but boy, I did not like him in this story. We we get back to the intense, wide-eyed Sinclair that showdown, especially with Ben Zane. I I think I think he's supposed to look like he's going to take a swing at him, but he is so stiff that it really doesn't look like that's what's happening at all. Mm-hmm. You know, Garibaldi just sort of grabs his shoulder, and it's like, yeah, that, you didn't need to do that because he did not look like he was actually going to move. It was it it kind of. It made me sad because I was all excited to to maybe like him every time now, and mm-hmm. yeah, this was too much. See where I thought he was good. I, I you know, especially in that scene because it was those kinds of scenes early on in the season, which I think were Michael O'Hare's downfall. But I think when it was really ramping up there, I was actually I was actually legitimately impressed by him. And yeah, sure enough, that that sort of the lack of physical movement might 
you know, <laughs> be a detriment to, to the intensity of him actually maybe throwing a punch at him. But I, I, I think I'm starting to put it down to to direction, I think. Um, I think Rich, it's Richard Comps, Compston, Compston, I can't remember his name now, who's directed six episodes. Thankfully, he's done now as of Grail last week. Uh, and it, <laughs> it, it shows. I think he's one of the weaker directors, and I just get the impression that, you know, one take will do. It's just like, there just seems a sort of laziness. Mm-hmm. Get it all in front of the camera, but don't really care about what actually is happening in front of the camera. Um, and I, I find that Michael O'Hare's performances and all of them actually jerry doyle was pretty good in this one too and mm-hmm. and um claudia christian as ivanova had some great scenes i thought yeah um so all three of the the regulars so to speak uh, i thought performed really really well i was i was yeah i i've been i've been a fan of michael o'hara these past few weeks um the the or the early episodes i was kind of eh, a little bit iffy on him but um but i find him improving okay um yeah i can i can see that um i actually have in my notes a couple of places where I bet Erica's going to be grimacing right about this time. So I can <laughs> you pinpoint a couple so of well. those places. Yeah, the 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 circus act growl at t- towards the beginning, and then um, mm-hmm. his standoff with with Ben Zane. Um, so yeah, I can I can sort of see where um, where some of the actions heading back towards places that um, that Erica's mentioned before and described before, but again, not as bad. As some of the early episodes, certainly. And on the other hand, yeah, I thought Garibaldi was really good in this one. It just his timing seems to flow really well. Uh, he's required to play off so many different characters with his quips, and he pretty much gets it every time. Um, as well as uh, get us getting more of Claudia Christian and um, and Ivanova's uh, character. There were a couple of Ivanova moments that were maybe not entirely singing to me. Um, her dream sequence was maybe a bit over the top, and and when she is, is yelling at Harriman Gray, I I like I like the character doing those things, but the performance was just a little on the stagey side. It wasn't bad. It was just mm-hmm. I, I like her. I think I like her better when she's she's underplaying it and being a little bit more stoic. Mm-hmm. So. So Which I think is part of the point, though. Um, something yeah. I I'd noted here is, in this episode, we get we haven't really learned much of anything that's new about Ivanova's history. Just a few more details here and there, and yet it feels like we've really gotten a big chunk of her character more so than we have before. Because this seems to be the one thing that will tip her over into irrational moves. That's true. I, I actually put in my notes just the the scene with her. Uh, you know, she says it's a very Russian ending. I should have expected it. She leads her post. And <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's, you know, the thing that we know about her is that she is a good soldier and she, she does what she's supposed to do. And the fact that she's leaving her post is a really big deal. So that, that very much highlights how strongly she feels about this. So I, I, I liked that. I liked that scene very much because mm-hmm. she was clearly upset and and it really showed but she wasn't over the top with her uh, you know being effusive about it so that that part worked for me really well i'm, I'm going to ask a silly question because uh, i can't remember if they dealt with this before but did we know about um ivanova's mother before this episode it yes. was brought up in midnight on the firing line when talia winters is trying to check in with her and follow her regulations and finally tracks her down in the bar off um, when she's um, off duty. And Ivanova says very sort of briefly, this is what happened to my mother, and this is why I don't like Psychor, and you shouldn't take it personally. 
Right. And that okay. was the very first proper episode. So it was a long time ago. I <laughs> yeah. don't blame you for, yeah, for not remembering the details. Yeah, it seemed familiar, but not quite enough for me to sort of remember all the details of it. And so, uh, speaking of Talia Winters, uh, it, <laughs> I, I heard her name mentioned, so she's still on the payroll. But how many consecutive episodes is this now that she hasn't appeared? Stephen has been mentioning this just about every <laughs> week. Where is the telepath? Where is she? Is she on vacation? Has she been fired? So she, it was very funny when yeah. her name got mentioned. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of the same. There's several episodes that we're missing a lot of people. Like, this is the first time Lanier has shown up in a while. We haven't seen Dr. Franklin for a while. You know, Veers only popped up last episode after a long absence. So, yeah, it's at this point, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, this string of episodes feels a great deal like world building where they're focusing. Let's take a look at this group. Let's take a look at this group. So they're they're sort of rotating. And then um, later on, it, it starts meshing together more and we get more interactions uh, across the groups. Yeah, I actually quite I mean, I mentioned this to Erica and she was she was quite kind of taken aback, I think. But I, I kind of like the episodes more when there's no Londo or um, um, <laughs> Jakar, what's the other Jakar, Jakar. <laughs> because I just find them to be very stagey aliens. It's sort of like, you know, are slightly pantomime acting and they're sort of mm-hmm. in there for comic relief. And when they're not in the episode, I sort of get the impression that, you know, OK, we're in for a serious episode apart from i i think i enjoyed the subplot with the mic with the uh the motorbike and everything but i remember watching it, it this the whole episode started off with that and i could just tell right right then and for every single scene that featured it throughout the episode that they might as well just had a, a giant flashing <laughs> subplot sign in the on the wall or on screen because it was it was not as subtly handled i think because it only dealt with um with Garibaldi and Lanier and the motorbike, and it had nothing to do with anything else that was actually going on in the episode. Yeah, they, there were a few continuity mentions um, where they go back to the war prayer and the Mimbari poet who's traveling again. But other than that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like they were, they were there, and you you could have taken that subplot and put it into any other episode uh, apart from the joyride in the very last scene, and it would have you know it would have wouldn't have felt out of place. Mm-hmm. I do I do really like it though, just because you know me and my character moments. I really oh, yeah. appreciated seeing Lanier become sort of more of a character. He's he's really only just kind of been there to to be wide-eyed and and followed Len around in a couple episodes and and here he's being wide-eyed and following somebody entirely different um but i just think it's so cute how he is just so enthusiastic we we've learned that he he likes learning about history and how he just feels so terrible when he displeases linear like he's just he wants to be this this great student and 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 learn and and help people but Mm -hmm. he he then takes away you know the the purpose disappears from from poor garibaldi and he realizes he's made such a big mistake and and then garibaldi like he he takes pity on him he's Mm -hmm. he's he's like a wide-eyed child and and i just really enjoyed that scene at the the end yeah and there's a couple little things in there that are so cute um the idea of the the manual being in japanese so garibaldi can't figure it out and apparently linear has some way of picking up language well enough that, you know, he, he winds up, um, you know, saying, you know, domo arigato at one point to, to Garibaldi yes. without even thinking as he's leaving his quarters. So just so cute. Yeah. I, I well, agree. I'm, it's very, it's very set apart from the rest of the story, but um, in and of itself, it's cute. It is. Yeah. And while we're on uh, 
uh, characters and character moments and stuff. I think this was a really good one, as we said before, for uh, for Garibaldi. Jerry Doyle, in addition to Jerry Doyle having a, a great performance, I, I quite like the writing here. I think there was, you know, some real quippy lines. We got Garibaldi getting to say something like, Prote- protest of Orleans are about as much use as fairy wings on a cement truck, which yep. I think is just a clever line. <laughs> but it's also a very Garibaldi line. Like, that just sounds like something he would say. Yeah. Um, but then we also get him saying, if I knew who God was, I'd thank her. And, you know, yeah. the her in there, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm i drawing a lot of similarities to, or perhaps he's just reminding me more and more, is Garibaldi, of one Commander Riker of Star Trek The Next Generation. He's, <laughs> oh, he's sort geez. of following into that, that kind of second in command more. You know, he's not necessarily head of security. He just feels kind of like, you know... Is um, Sinclair's number one, so to speak, and uh, yeah. I, I, and just the way he swaggers around a little bit, he just he reminds me of a of a poor man's Riker, so to speak. But he's he's got layers, man. Like you know his yeah. his uh, his security word password is peekaboo. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's just that's giggle worthy for me every time I think about it. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm he, into, he has a uh, total mm-hmm. talent of saying yes sir to 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 Ben Zane, and you just know that that what he's actually saying is f you. He's able to deliver yeah. that so nicely. Good stuff. I'm just looking for other little character things in my in my notes, and <laughs> I realize I have Jeffrey Combs with exclamation points twice, <laughs> two different times. Uh, yeah, one time with three exclamation points. We also get to points. see uh, Lou Welch again. So he oh, shows yeah. up the the security guard when uh, towards the beginning <laughs> that you know shows himself to be clever enough to sort of pick up that you know the things that this guy is asking him are you know not exactly kosher and then when he sees the same guy go after garibaldi second in command and start a conversation again he immediately goes to garibaldi he, he just shows again he is one of he is on garibaldi's team mm-hmm. True. have we seen him before as yes. well yeah okay i i didn't i didn't recognize him but when when they said that his name was lou welch i just thought that yes he looks like a lou welch that is just <laughs> You know, sort of squat, fat, and bald, kind of, you know, yep, Lou Welch, good old Lou Welch. Probably, he'd probably drive a taxi back on Earth if he was working there. (laughs) So I liked him. While we're on uh, while we're on character stuff, um, while this was not my favorite Michael O'Hare episode, I do like Sinclair in it because I I, I like it every time Sinclair sort of plays lawyer and you know digs into the regulations mm-hmm. to try to stick it to the man within the system, and it it eventually doesn't really completely work for him because he still gets sort of brought up on charges, but he's able to. To, again, even after that, work within the system and twist things so that that he comes out on top. So, so yay for the the rules lawyering for for Sinclair. Indeed. Yeah, I like that bit too. He's done that a couple of times. He's done, he did that in that uh, labor negotiations episode as well, which I thought was quite clever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still one of my favorite moments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know that uh, we talked about direction for a little bit, and Stephen, you had quite a few things to say about the direction of, of this one, and um, specifically about some of the uh, the camera work and stuff. And, and I actually, I remember when, before we started this podcast, and I had talked to you about Babylon 5, you had said that uh, every time you had flipped past the show in the 90s, you just saw people in weird makeup talking in corridors. And yep. I was watching this episode going, there's a lot of talking in corridors. I guess he's not wrong. But you liked it this time. Tell me why. I did. Um, there's some. There's a couple. There's one nice moment I remember when um, when um, 
Ben Zane is sitting on at the desk there in a nice tidy close up and then Sinclair walks in and they do a nice little rack focus in behind and then he's sort of walking in there and I thought that there's 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 some real art going on here. Jim Johnson was mm-hmm. the director and I thought he really handled some there's a couple there's another shot when Ivanova sort of walks close to the camera with um uh, Jeffrey Coombs's character in the background. You know, just there's some nice framing going on. I think I've I, I've said before how sometimes you could tell that what shots were were intended to be four by three, but they just sort of stretch them out. And I think now we're sort of looking at it as it was shot for sixteen by nine. And I think that the framing is better in store in in episodes like this. And and I think it's just you know when there's tighter angles and tighter cuts on things, it just sort of it helps propel the action better um, when you're instead of just having to rely on the actors to do it. You know, you're sort of relying on editing to do that for you. Mm-hmm. And and it also one thing you pointed out that I agree it felt very alive, intense, and vibrant because you got a bunch of handheld stuff going. Yeah, um, there's yeah there's some handheld stuff in the uh, in the corridors. It's sort of like um, it was uh, veneer. No, it was veneer and and Linear. Garibaldi. Yeah, walking down walking down the corridor that sort of twists and turns a little bit, and they stop for a bit and they move on again and stop a bit, and they, it was all done on one handheld shot. And I thought that's. That's not a common thing in mid-90s television. So it was a bit, a bit of a bold departure there. From, you know, Because especially when you're on the same sets every single week that have no windows or anything, it's, it's, there's a tendency that, that things might be getting a little more stale. Um, so little things like that, little touches like that help to sort of change it up a bit from week to week. Mm-hmm. The, the, the one thing that I thought was uh, the most 90s thing of the entire episode was the dream sequence. It was it was creeptastic <laughs> and it was effective, but it was it was kind of over the top in a very 90s sort of a way. Like yeah. It, you know, there's, it, it would be hard to mistake when this episode was made simply because of that one sequence. It kind of looked like a Bonnie Tyler music video, didn't it? <laughs> it did. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it did. <laughs> And that's not that's not a condemnation. I just do something that I noticed. <laughs> yeah, some things are of its time, and that's kind of what makes watching this series interesting for me. You know, knowing when it sort of started airing after Next Generation had sort of been a thing for seven years and sort of had set the standard for televised science fiction, and then all of a sudden there there's this new series that's sort of doing it its own way, and I I find it interesting to watch. It's a little bit of cultural anthropology via television. That too. Yeah. Yeah. Also, though, it lets you um, see sort of what themes can get revisited because they are so compelling. Um, Something that was on the Lurker's Guide uh, quoted from back when uh, J. Michael Straczynski was participating in the RecArts SFTV B5 forums um, was the fact that a lot of people criticized uh, this episode for being too much like the Star Trek Next Generation episode Drumhead. Um, and Straczynski was quick to point out that the writer Larry Dottillo had not had been avoiding watching Star Trek. Um, he, you know, had because, you know, he, he wanted to be able to write his own thing, but pointing out that this kind of theme of officers being questioned for their loyalty of investigating officers with less than good intentions is a common theme. He mentioned the Kane mutiny. I'm trying to remember some other movies and television shows he mentioned to make his point that, you know, these things have, these things seem to have things in common because they are all tapping into uh, the same story. That makes sense. I don't remember Drumhead. I remember the name, but I don't remember the actual episode, but It, it was, it was the similar idea with starting what seemed to be a simple investigation and Picard 
tries to sort of it, not, not exactly shield the person who start who's being investigated at first, but at least try to see that everything is handled fairly. Um, but the person pursuing the investigation is um, driven and obsessed about the situation for some reason and pushes and she pushes and pushes until she's going after Picard herself. So mm-hmm. it's the same general idea, but there's tons of differences and tons of things to look at between the two. And plus Babylon 5's characters are more flawed and more human i find than the next generation crew so there's there's more to uncover usually it's just you know in in the next generation episode it would be the person who's doing the pushing that would be the the mad one but sometimes in in babylon 5 there's some justification for pushing back because there's there's mysterious qualities to each of these characters' backgrounds you know garibaldi's a recovering alcoholic um o'hare is somehow 95th on the list of of command candidates yet he's on there you know ivanova with uh with her mother and everything so everyone has a lot of a lot of secrets to hide so it's interesting it's 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 it's, but they're much more diverse cast of characters i find at this point than they were on next generation i agree very true well i'm just scanning through my notes to see if there's anything else that i have to mention uh, before we go through the jump gate and space steven i mean um (laughs) (laughs) send him off uh that would be uh just have um it's another character moment with lanier which i missed mentioning before it's just when he's learning about uh the motorcycles just him repeating in his very sort of naive innocent voice yes sexual prowess and rebellion (laughs) oh yes the 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 innocence just shines forth yes i loved that too (laughs) i was half expecting the next scene he'd be like wearing a leather jacket or something like that (laughs) glad they didn't go that far yeah yeah yeah, no leather jackets but we got more open collar acting um i don't remember the scene right this second but at one Uh, point garibaldi and benzane have been up all night and their jackets are undone oh yeah yeah (laughs) That is how you show on Babylon 5 that time has passed, because we don't have a lot of clocks, so it's the collars. True. Yeah, I like this episode. I liked it a lot. I'm I'm, I'm happy that I get called on to episode to episodes of the podcast to talk about episodes that I like on the TV, <laughs> and I've liked most of them. And I haven't really like grown through a lot of them, apart from maybe Grail a little bit. Okay. Um, but this this was one of the stronger ones for me. Well, I'm sad that that ship is is unwell, but I guess it's good timing. <laughs> Yeah, lucky happenstance. Yeah, what, what, does does he like this episode um, based on his previous watchings of it? Um, I think in general he does. Uh, he certainly, both of us certainly appreciate sort of its role in in the uh, in the season because uh, something that JMS was very careful to do was he built he built to this episode. He had Sinclair making so many mistake not mistakes so many decisions that could be questioned so many ways of working around regs um because of the distance from earth he has to sometimes make these kinds of decisions uh and then hope that everyone back on earth understands and to see it build and build you know some viewers were watching and questioning you know how how can sinclair do this every week how can sinclair make these kinds of decisions uh and you know, Straczynski, again, from Records SFB5 would be commenting, I would read these comments and I just wanted to reach through the monitor and just poink these people on the head because I know what's coming. <laughs> he he was ready to show consequences. And here we finally get some. So Chip and I both appreciate uh, that um, aspect of it very much. Chip had some other things, but those will have to wait until after the jump gate. Oh, indeed. 
Yeah, sorry, Stephen. You'll, you'll right. have to wait for five, six years until you <laughs> yeah. get through your second watch of yeah. Rise. I look forward to wa- to listening in half a decade to this. This is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, Stephen has told me that uh, that it feels strange in, in part that he's that there. I'm recording a podcast that in part of it he can't listen to, but also the fact that sometimes he thinks I'm probably talking about him after the jump gate uh, when he can't hear it. I'm like, hmm, I'm not going to say. <laughs> But I guess it's about that time, unless we can think of anything else. Any nope, I'm good. Last words for the moment? Okay. No, but I'm happy to pinch hit. So I'm and sorry, we- Chip, that you were sick, but I'm very happy to have filled in. So thank you for having me on at short notice. Absolutely. Thank you for doing it. We really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Um, so we will let everyone know, um, new listeners and old listeners, your homework for next time. We are still following the Lurker's Guide Master episode list, so we're still not in sync with the DVDs at this time. But we ask that you watch um, this time. It's not just a homework assignment. It's a project. Uh, both parts of A Voice in the Wilderness. This is a two-part episode, but we're going to cover both of the whole story next episode. So you'll be watching two episodes um, before we get to our next show. Um, as Exciting. all. Hmm? I can't That's tell you how exciting. Yeah, I know. Because sometimes <laughs> Yay, two weeks in between two. episodes is too much. I know. <laughs> um, so you can come and talk to us about Eyes or A Voice in the Wilderness or any other episode that we've covered so far in our forums, uh, in our threads on our website, which is at b5audioguide.com. You can also talk to us on Tumblr and Twitter at b5audioguide, and we welcome everyone's input, both our veterans and our newbies. And with that, I think we will head through a jump gate. Bye, Stephen. Bye. We are back, and this time it is just Erica and me to talk about uh, the things that Eyes sets up for future episodes. And yeah, um, it's kind of lonely. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, we'll manage. Yeah, oh, we'll be fine. Yeah. We'll be fine. We can carry this thing, no problem. I think so. Um, something that I noticed as I was uh, making notes for this episode: yes, there's a huge ton of continuity from before but there's actually a surprising amount of things that i think more seeds are being planted um in this episode that we will be um seeing down the line mm-hmm. uh, yeah are- from just from from establishing you know certain characters and the way that they act to yeah seeds for for actual stuff yeah um one of the biggest ones i think um well two of the biggest ones i think have to do with susan um, of course, the fact that she has more to hide about her relationship with her mother than what we've been given so far. The fact that there seems to be something else that she's not letting out. And we'll learn later on, of course, that she's actually a latent telepath, that she has barely any ability, but it's just enough that if the Psychor knew about it, they would be snapping her up immediately. Yeah, that's one thing that I I can't remember at this point when we find that out. So I find myself when I'm talking about the show uh, having to be very careful like to not accidentally spill the beans about that when I'm talking to Steven right. because it's one of those things that that I knew from from you know watching it and starting in the middle. So when I saw this, it wasn't 
you know, that was that was never really a secret for me. Right. So it's, it's hard for me to get my head around that. Yeah, I don't remember exactly when it is either. I should have looked it up. It's definitely after Sheridan arrives in like s- somewhere in late oh, season yeah, two, early right. season three, because mm-hmm. Sheridan's the one that she talks to about it. Um, that's right. I'm, I'm remembering the scene. I'm just I'm still not remembering the exact episode. Me either. Um, and we also get um, the next step in the building over the relationship with Talia Winters, because um, Harrison Gray starts talking about being intimate with a telepath. And apparently, Susan's mind leaps to mm-hmm. Talia Winters so much that he can't help but pick it up. Oh, that's so, right. Yeah, I guess I I, uh, <laughs> I didn't notice that timing there. Funny. I, I I follow on Tumblr. I follow a few folks who ship Susan and Talia so hard. So I, I'm picking up. Uh-huh. I think I'm more aware now and picking this stuff up faster and sooner. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and honestly, I'm I am not much of a shipper as uh, listeners to my Doctor Who podcast will know. <laughs> but when it comes to Susan and Talia, yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's not even really subtext, uh, you know, by the end of the her, right. her tenure on the show. I, I think that that one was I, I, I don't feel like maybe JMS was comfortable. Um, I mean, he probably would have been perfectly comfortable with it, but television wasn't right. comfortable with it at that time. He, so he did his best to limits. get it out there. Yeah, he knew the limits mm-hmm. of his audience. Exactly. Um, uh, we also get the political situation. Um, there's a bit of some info dumping at the beginning to remind us what's been going on. And it sounds like things are really getting scary in certain places. If we've got not just one group uh, that we get the first mention of free Mars here, which will become very big and important in later episodes. Um, But the fact that there's multiple radical groups running around on Mars on some of the other outposts causing all of these problems, I think builds to what will eventually be, you know, eventually they start breaking off into independence uh, in season three. That's true. And if you're, you know, if you're just watching this through the first time, it it plays out in the episode as if it's just another plot mechanic in order to get Garibaldi um, to be paying more close attention to Ben Zane and, and Harriman Gray. But in reality, it's actually building towards something um, much bigger in an arc-based sense. So I think that's really nice. It's kind of camouflaged within this episode. It's, it's mm-hmm. you know, it goes by and it's just sort of a part of the stream that washes over you and you may not even in catch it, but it's, it's, it's building towards something. And I really like that. Yeah, uh, we get the same thing with um, mentions of the president. We've gotten hints before mm-hmm. that he's struggling a bit, that he doesn't have as much support in the Senate as he used to, um, that his popularity is slipping, that he needs this trade agreement, I forget if that's exactly what it was or not, to go through uh, to -hmm. help his political position. And of course, that's going to keep building to the point where he's not just facing popular opposition, but within his own government, as uh, Clark is going to help arrange for his assassination at the end of the season. Yeah, there's so much cool background stuff happening on this and, you know, a few of the other more recent episodes, too, that it's just it's it's like this amazing tapestry that is behind all of the characters all the time. And if you're paying close attention and you know what to look for, you see it and it's really vibrant and, and cool. But if you are not in the know, it just looks like uh, some nice set dressing. But it's more than that. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the last thing I had in my list was the... um the, the Psycor, that we get more intimations that the Psycor is taking on a bigger role than it's supposed to uh, with the government behind the government, 
Um, the fact that Bester apparently can pull enough strings to get some joints chiefs of staff to put his buddy into attack mode against Sinclair. That, yeah. That's scary. That is another thing that I have a little trouble um, keeping my yap shut about when I'm <laughs> talking about it or even just thinking about it to myself. Because that's another thing where when I jumped in, Sycor was already kind of the big bad in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So here I find myself just trying to keep mum for the most part whenever Steven says something about Sycor or points out, you know, that, oh my gosh, they mentioned Bester again. Like, I'm just trying to be like, la 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 la, because I can't remember exactly how much he, Stephen might have figured out how much he might have known right. at this point, because they're just sort of, you know, at this point, you know, we've gotten a couple of characters f- from Sycor who are, are good people. You know, right. Talia at this point is is a pretty stand-up, stand-up lady and you got Harriman Gray. So they, they're bringing in more and more characters who are likable. Right. And and then, you know, on the other hand, you do have your, your besters and that sort of thing, but it hasn't quite toppled to the point where it's it's very clear that the whole system is rotten. Exactly. Let's see. A couple more tiny things that I had um, just more for amusement than anything else. Um, I already mentioned, you know, Lou Welch showing that he's going to, you know, continue to be a, a stand-up guy, a, a support to Garibaldi. Um, he, that continues here and will continue in later episodes. But the last thing I had mentioned, um, I don't think we were supposed to pick this up at all necessarily, but in uh, the dream sequence with Susan and her mother, you've got these two characters in the comedy and tragedy masks representing the psychor. Mm-hmm. The one wearing the tragedy mask is actually the same actor that is Garibaldi's aide who's going to shoot him at the end <gasps> of the season and turns really? out to be a Psychor link. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. And I mean, I I would love to think that they did that on purpose because, you know. Uh, they, they did. J- JMS says that was a deliberate he, choice. He, he knew that it would almost certainly not be picked up at all, <laughs> but he did it. Oh, that is so awesome. Because, you know, if if Ivanova has a, a bit of latent t- telepathy, then there's a chance yep. that she, on some level, subconsciously knows this. And that's why she put him in that mask in her dream. I also um, noticed about Jack that he is Garibaldi's second in command. And because Ben Zane has, has snatched Garibaldi away for a few days, yes, he's, he's having Garibaldi's second in command handling security for a few days. And they didn't make anything of it, but I kind of wondered in my head, knowing what's coming, oh, is, that is this all part of the same big plan so that Jack can maybe, I don't know, dig through the files or just get a little bit more... A window of um, opportunity. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. There's so much stuff going on. I'm so excited now. Yes. Um, something that uh, Chip had wanted us to to bring up. I didn't mention this part in the pre-spoiler section, which I could have. Uh, this was actually the last episode of the season to be filmed because it had so little in the way of special effects. It didn't need much post-production. So, um, but the thing that Chip actually wondered when he was watching, he was aware of this, and he was really watching Michael O'Hare and his performance. And as we saw, he seemed to backtrack or sort of backslide somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chip was actually wondering, you know, JMS has said in some of the interviews and talking about uh, the situation with Michael, Michael O'Hare's mental illness, whether this the the um, expression that JMS used at one point was that O'Hare was hanging on by threads. At this point, and I wonder, oh. Chip was wondering with that knowledge, how much of his acting choices was was him just trying to get through the episode. 
if by this oh, time no, he that, knew he wouldn't be back. And it was just trying to... Yeah. I had no idea that this was, was filmed last, but mm-hmm. but as you said, I definitely noticed sort of a, a difference with the with his performance and the backsliding and that that very well could have been it because mm-hmm. I think I think when he when he goes to that place, the the wide eyed acting, as mm-hmm. I keep calling it, the intensity. Right. I think that that maybe is a little bit easier of a choice than than the amount of, of subtlety and control needed to underplay right. scenes like that. So maybe maybe that that is why, because he was struggling so much by this point that he he kind of had to go for the slightly easier mm-hmm. choices from an acting standpoint. Yeah, I I think Chip's got a point. So mm-hmm. in that one. I don't have anything else that I noticed in my notes, just sort of like I keep, you know, like I keep saying again and again, that there's just, it's, it's kind of this current in the background that mm-hmm. it, it, this is one of the first episodes that really feels like later Babylon 5 in that there's so much stuff kind of going on. You know, later we have, it, it's a little bit more all at the surface. You have a lot of different plots happening at the same time um, that that you know you know about, you know, the the shadows are doing this and the Vorlands are doing that and the Centauri are doing whatever. Uh, in this case, a lot of that stuff is sort of happening. It's just not happening right in front of you. And I mm-hmm. I, I like the, the feel of it. And maybe part of that is down to the direction as well. But uh, all of it kind of comes together and uh, all the parts are, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good way to look at it. Spe- kind of all of Babylon 5, actually. <laughs> yes, very true. Okay. All right. Well, then, then I guess it's, it's time for us to, to sign off. Uh, hopefully Chip will be back with us in a couple of weeks when we talk about A Voice in the Wilderness, parts one and two. I'm pretty excited to be watching both of them and not having to wait two weeks exactly <laughs> in between <laughs> that cliffhanger. Yeah, good good planning on, on our part there. Yep. Not that I had anything to do with that particular decision. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm just happy about it. Yes. So... Um, I, I guess it is time for us to, to say goodbye again. Please come and visit us at b5audioguide.com and at b5audioguide on Twitter and Tumblr and let us know what you're thinking about it. And we will we will see you next time. So until then, this is Erica in Edmonton and Shannon in Durham. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Peekaboo.